following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. wasn't that many weeks ago that we observed Thanksgiving, one of my favorite times, got family and friends uh, doing lots of things, but particularly gathering around a table, and not just to, to gorge ourselves, but we gather at a table of plenty um, to remind ourselves of God's goodness and grace to us. And it's a, it's a very important meal because of that. Well, there is another meal that's more important, a meal not only um, in which we can celebrate God's goodness and grace, but a meal by which God communicates goodness and grace. And that's the meal that we're considering this morning, the Lord's Supper. So we come today to the end of this uh, little mini-series on the worship, its principles, and its elements. Uh, and that was built on looking at 1 Timothy, the life of the church. And if some of you have not been with us from the beginning, I would encourage you to go back and listen both to the series in Timothy, where it really defines who and what we are, what we want to be, and to any that you missed in the series on the elements of worship. So we come to the conclusion uh, by looking at Mark's account uh, of the institution of the Lord's Supper. The context is very interesting. The Jews have determined to murder Jesus. But they also had determined not to do it during the feast. But that's important. Because God, through the intimations of prophecy, the Passover lamb had to be slain during the feast. Christ had to die during the feast. So how does God orchestrate that? Do you remember? Well, they're at a, another banquet, a feast, and uh, Mary, Lazarus' sister, comes in and anoints Jesus' body with very expensive uh, uh, oils and perfume, and uh, the disciples, and particularly Judas, are indignant, thinking, well, that money should have been given to the poor. Now, in Judas' case, I think it's John who tells us, he said that not because he cared about the poor, because he was the treasurer, and he was pilfering from the treasury. But even, just think about Jesus' response. I mean, could any mere man say this and not be an absolute egotist? You'll have the poor with you always. But I'm just here now, and she's done a good thing. So, that is what God ordained for the devil to work in Judas in this concurrent act to go betray the Savior so that he secretly, avoiding a tumultuous mob, be arrested and put to death. Now, because of the importance of having the Passover, that's why Jesus then sends these two disciples on this really interesting errand. He doesn't tell the disciples publicly where it's going to be because that would have been an opportune time for Judas to bring uh, the soldiers to arrest Jesus. No, so there's this little game and they go, they find a man carrying a water pitcher, they follow him and that secretly is where it's being betrayed. Judas doesn't know about it until they all arrive there following Jesus. So again, you see how in our Savior's mind it's so important 
that they have this Passover together. Now, it's in the midst of that Passover that we have our text, verses 22 to 25. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. By God's grace, I want to show you from these verses that our Savior instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to be a sign and seal of the covenant and its benefits and to be observed by the church until the end of the age. So here our Savior institutes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to be a sign and seal of the covenant and its benefits and to be observed till the end of the age. So I want to deal with three things from this text, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the purpose or significance of the Lord's Supper, and the uh, perpetuity or duration of the Lord's Supper. Well, as the text begins, we see this institution. While they were eating, he took some bread. Now, the Passover was so important, you see. And it actually is a picture to us of, of the Lord's Supper in many different ways. But particularly here, I want to remind you, as we read in Exodus 12, the Passover was doing two things. First, it was looking back, remembering God's redemption. And we must always remember the objective acts of God's redemption. And it's looking forward as we see it begin to unfold with the other festivals and feasts and, and Sabbath of the Old Covenant to the Savior himself, who in fact, John tells us, was the Passover lamb. When he says, behold, the Lamb of God, he uses the word, therefore, the Passover lamb. So the very reality of the Passover was present with them as they are taking this meal uh, together, thinking about these great acts of deliverance, such as we sang about in portions of Psalm 105, but also now anticipating what he, the Lamb of God, is going to do on behalf of his people. So after the, the meat had been eaten, he takes a piece of bread. Now, boys and girls, why do you think he took bread? Why didn't he take some nice mutton or lamb? Because the lamb was slain now in Christ. And the blood was shed. We need no blood shed. We need no lamb sacrificed. And we need to eat no lamb as a commemoration of God's redemption because now the lamb was there soon to be sacrificed. And so he takes the very simple thing. He takes bread. Although, as we read in John 6, 35, this whole idea of Christ, the bread of life, runs straight through uh, his ministry. And we'll come back to the appropriateness then of bread to represent him. But he takes some bread. And by that very simple action, with the, the words uh, with it, he institutes the supper. So look what he did. In the first place, he took some bread. After a blessing, he broke it. Now here is the key part of the institution of the supper. Perhaps you remember that when um, God blesses something, he sets it aside to particular purposes. 
and promises to work in it in order to accomplish those purposes. So he blessed the, the fish and created things uh, on day five of the creation, and that was instilling in them that which we would refer to as instinct. And by the Spirit enabling them then to do the purposes for which God created them. He blessed man, gave him the responsibility to subdue the creation. He blessed the Sabbath, not just setting it aside, but giving it that purpose to be a blessing to man. So here, this is the Son of God, the God-man, blesses this particular bread. Not the individual piece simply by itself, though, but the act of taking bread and breaking it. He now instills in this act the taking and the breaking and the subsequent eating, the blessing, that this is going to be a great means of blessing in the church until he comes. And then we see that he takes a cup. And here he gives thanks, recognizing again that the great God of the covenant is the one who nourishes his people and will satisfy for all their sins. And he, he said, he gave it to them, they all drank from it. He said, this is my blood of the covenant. And we'll come back to this. But simply notice that he sets aside these two simple things, bread and wine, to be the demonstration of the covenant. In this... Our Savior, by words and by actions. And we'll also note that the actions are very important. One of the errors that we've seen in our denomination is called intinction. And this is where people will take bread, follow the custom of the old, well, still the Eastern Orthodox Church, dip it in wine and take it all together. But you clearly see that Christ does this in steps, doesn't he? Take the bread, eat it. Take the wine, drink it. And that's why we do this, but it's also why the sacramental actions of taking and breaking and giving are also very important. So the Apostle summarizes this for us in Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he gives us the formal institution based on the Lord's exercise at the, at the supper. In, in Corinthians 11, 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here we have the formal institution of the Lord's Supper, a very simple meal that God has given to us. A simple meal that is full and rich of, I could say, divine calories. So let's look at the purpose then of this rich banquet of bread and wine. And that's the second thing, and in the language of our confession and of historic Christianity, it is the sign and seal of the covenant and its benefits. So let's unpack this. Now, these four words, this is my body, this is my blood, so simple, are some of those controverted words in the history of Christian doctrine. The Romanists took these words and turned the whole thing into uh, an absurd, illogical uh, uh, conundrum, problem that 
the, by, by these dedication, the, the, uh, the substance of the bread is turned into the body of Christ. The substance of the wine is turned into the blood of Christ. But the form, that by which you see it, or its accidents, will they remain bread and wine? That's illogical. It's impossible. Uh, and notice as well that the real body is right there. <laughs> this is my body. Obviously, he's not talking about himself, is he? Uh, you children have heard the, what magicians say? Hocus pocus. That's hocus pocus. That actually is the Latin for comes from this is my body. That's how the world has looked at this absurdity. Uh, but Luther continued the absurdity, arguing then with his fellow reformers that this is my body. Well, it's got to be Christ's literal body in some way. So recognizing the absurdity of what's called transubstantiation, that the, uh, the real thing has changed, but the accidents uh, remain uh, bread and wine, he developed consubstantiation, which also is a terrible Christology, we'll look at it another day, where Christ is physically present. So this is given to his human nature, divine attributes called ubiquity. Christ is physically present in, around, and under the elements, so that you really are feasting on Christ's literal body. We'll come back to the correct approach to that, but that's the kind of confusion that has come out of these words. This is my body. This is my blood. Well, it's, in the first place, a very simple uh, metaphor, isn't it? Is he not saying this represents my body? As he sits here, he's giving bread there, this is my body. What is the only common sense thing would have been in the minds of the apostles? This represents my body. He's also said that I'm a door. I'm light. Many other metaphors he used. He, he is the shepherd. Uh, and they recognize that all these things were, were pictures. So we talk about the sign. The covenant is a sign. And we all know what a sign is. So you're driving down the interstate. It used to be it only had a plate with a fork and a knife, or it had a gas pump. Now they actually tell you which people are there. So there's a shell uh, picture there, or there's a, a, a Denny's, or Chick-fil-A, or, or whatever. And, and that sign is telling you that if you get off there, at that exit, you're going to find those things. And normally those signs are quite reliable. Although one time we were making our annual trek from Philadelphia to the south at Christmas time, and this was back when the Tri-City area of, of Kingsport and Bristol and Johnson City were underdeveloped. <laughs> there was nothing on the freeway. And we're getting low on gas, and we're looking for that gas pump sign, and finally there's one. We get off, we head to it, and we have another sign, Ridge Out. So the first sign lied to us at that point, and we had to drive around, find a tobacco farmer who would... Uh, we offered to buy some gas. He sold it to us till we could get to a, to a gas station. But, but the signs are supposed to be reliable representations telling us what's there. So when Christ says, this is my body, he tells us a number of things uh, in, in the symbol, the sign. In the first place, when he says of the bread, my body, and my blood, he is teaching us that he has a true human nature. With a body, a soul, blood, like us in all respects, yet without sin. But also, this body is broken. This blood is poured out as the blood of the new covenant. And there he is telling us 
that the body is going to be given as a sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb. He's going to be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. Thus, we're doing what Paul says. We're proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. And we are to meditate on the death of our Savior as we take the Lord's Supper. It's also a picture of our union with Christ, isn't it? What happens when you eat something? It comes into your body and uh, becomes one with us. Sometimes too much one. But anyway, becomes one uh, with us. And there we see... Uh, both the act of faith, which is what we see in John 6.35, which is eating, and the union with Christ that comes from that eating. It's also a picture of who we are. As Paul will say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we are the one body of Christ. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, we all partake of one bread. So it reminds us that we also are in union uh, with one another. And of course, it compels us then to renew our covenant with the Lord. So it's a glorious picture, and it's full, and, and we should meditate on all of these things. But it's more than a picture, you see. That's why we say it is a seal. Again, children, we talk about seals. We're not talking about those things that yelp at the zoo. No, we're talking about a stamp. It's placed on a document and declares it to be authentic. So the Lord's Supper is the Lord's stamp on your heart. Now, we've talked about metaphorical language, and that is obviously what Christ is doing. But there is also what our confession describes as sacramental language. And what that means is that the relationship between the sign... And the reality is so close that sometimes the one is spoken of as the other. You know, we do this. Uh, Southerners uh, never asked for a Pepsi or uh, a ginger ale or an RC Cola. Regardless of what soda we wanted, we asked for a Coke. And Coke meant a soft drink. That's because the first Coke, Coke was the first soft drink, and of course it's from the South. And so uh, we have to observe these things properly. Or perhaps you want a Kleenex. Now, they're called all kinds of things now, but we still say, give me, well, you might say a tissue, but I still say Kleenex, because that was the original. And so because the close relationship between the sign and the reality, the one takes the name of the other. That's, that's simple, isn't it? So just look at it biblically. And in Genesis 17, verse 10, as God institutes the covenant and he institutes circumcision in the covenant, he calls circumcision the covenant. This, verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Because circumcision, the sign of the covenant, is so close to the reality that's involved in it, the spiritual pictures are there of mortification and, and sanctification, the one is called by the other. Paul shows us this close relationship as well. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, um, verse 15, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And so there's this very close relationship, and that's involved in, in the sign, I mean, in the seal. So this is the great mystery of the sacrament that our forefathers have labored to uh, explain and um, 
it, at the end of the day, we accept it uh, simply as a mystery, but it, it's a beautiful statement in our confession of faith uh, on uh, the Lord's Supper. Paragraph um, six or seven. Were the receivers, this is on page 937, were the receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also by faith, really and indeed, not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, but really indeed, spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in with or under the bread and wine, yet as really, but spiritually, present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Now you see what I mean by it being a mystery. But it's, it is so true, so profound, that Christ has appointed the simple taking of 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 the bread and the wine, that he is spiritually bringing to us the physical benefits of his work on our behalf as the mediator. This gets to why this is the blood of the covenant poured out for the remission of sins of many. In some way, we are participating spiritually in Christ the Redeemer, in his whole being as the God-man. So you might not understand it. Do you understand the Trinity? But you rejoice in the truth. Rejoice in this. Calvin said that the bread uh, in, in, the, uh, in the mouth was Christ in the heart. That's, that's the reality. And so we say then this for assurance of salvation. This is why we encourage those who wrestle with assurance but have been admitted to the table by the elders to come and seek Christ. Feed on Christ and seek from Christ uh, the seal, uh, the certainty of your pardon. This is why we encourage one another as we wrestle in our weaknesses and our sins not to stay away. But as you would go to the doctor with, with pains and hurts and breaks, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ at his table with the very things that would keep you away. Except he's the great physician. He says, come and feed on me. It is magic. It is a spiritual magic, not the hocus pocus of Romanism, but a genuine food that in some wonderful way, a biblical magic that Christ strengthens us against our sins, and helps us to grow grace. You see what a grand, grand privilege it is to have the Lord's Supper. That's why we're committed as soon as we have the, the personal, physical resources to have weekly communion to do so. We talked about it once in Sunday school. We'll explain it more later. We're not ready just in terms of personnel to be able to go to weekly communion. But it's because of this rich feast and what Christ promises to do for us in this feast. But also, because of what's taking place here, I want you to notice the warning that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, because of all this, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he needs to eat the bread, drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So when we're judged, we're disciplined by the Lord, so that we'll not be condemned along with the world. And here's the warning that we give when we fence the table. That you're not to come to this table as one who is um, uh, living in sin. Not to come ignorant, unable to, in some, some way, take hold of Christ and to recognize that although you don't understand the fullness of it, that, that Christ is giving himself to you in this. One who's part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not living in sin. I preached this sermon in, in Mississippi two weeks ago. It was very appropriate there, and, and I, I would not judge individuals, but it was my experience uh, in our, all of our southern towns that there was a high proportion of widows in the church. Knowing the lives of some of the men, I say that part of that, not look at any one individual, but part of that is because those men were hypocrites coming to the Lord's table. This is a serious thing. Uh, you notice, and I know as a young Christian how I puzzled over Judas being there, but you, you just, we read the, the paragraph before him, what's Christ doing? He's, he's warning. He's warning Judas. He's fencing the table. He's basically saying, don't go do what you're going to do, and don't come and eat of this if you intend to do it. Woe to that man. It'd be better for him not to have been born. And dear friends, that is for you. You wrestle with sin, you want to grow in grace, and you flee to Christ, and you come to his table. But if you are deliberately living in, practicing sin, refusing to repent of any particular sin, don't come to the Lord's table. Don't come until you have come for the cleansing of Christ in confession. Uh, and as our catechism says, uh, holy endeavors after new obedience. Well, quickly then, we've seen the institution and the significance of the purpose. Consider uh, the duration. And it's put here uh, in Mark uh, chapter uh, 14, uh, with a promise that Christ gives to the disciples that he will not drink the wine again uh, until the kingdom. So, verse 25, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine of, until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, the initial fulfillment of this would have been the resurrection. Uh, we're now there will be a, a ceremonial meal established, and at least in a spiritual presence, Christ will be with us in that meal. But the fulfillment of this will be at the great banquet feast of the Lamb, where we then shall sit with the Lamb, and whatever that means, feast and eat and drink. Uh, and so that's where Paul then builds this last statement uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, where he says then, um, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And by that language, Paul is teaching us that this is not a temporary ordinance. It is a permanent ordinance sacrament given to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for our spiritual benefit to be observed by him until he comes.
And so in two weeks, we get to come to the Lord's table. And you remember then that Christ instituted that to be a sign and seal of the covenant and its benefits. You might proclaim his death till he comes. You might enjoy this as long as you are this side of that great banqueting table in heaven. And we thank our Lord that he condescended to us to do this. He not just gives us the promises of Scripture, but he reaches out a hand in our baptism and then in the Lord's Supper, gives us these sensible signs. So understand as well that he intends you to use these things as sensible signs, not cerebrally. Of course, you must take hold of them by faith. But you also, by faith, handle the bread. Smell it. We want to give you enough piece of bread you can really chew it. Look at the wine. Smell it. Look at the cup that Christ drained, the very wrath of God, and the cup that wine that makes glad the heart of man. You let God speak to you through your senses as you come to the table. And then bring all this together. Do it for yourself. Do it often with your children. But remember that which we have uh, already looked at before, and that is how do we behave during uh, our partaking of the Lord's Supper? And it's larger catechism. I had it marked and I've lost it. But anyway, um, 174. What is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of its administration? What are you to be doing? And you children who don't yet come to the table, you too are to think on these things. And you older young people should have quickened within you a desire to take hold of Christ in this. But here how we are to behave. It's required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. During the time of the admission of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance. Diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. Heedfully discern the Lord's body. These are things you're to be doing. Affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, and renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.